This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Today was a special day in the United States Congress, just after 15 weeks of which a leader in the Republican Party named Steve Scalise was brutally wounded by a shooting at a congressional baseball game practice. He walked back into that chamber with much roaring applause from both sides of the aisle. Democrats, Republicans, center, left, middle, up, down. It was a moment in which we've seen time and time again Americans coming together when we want a champion, someone who stared adversity right in the eyes, someone who stared hateful vengeance right in the face and stood back up, overcome, and kept walking on. Sometimes that's when America's at its best moment. It's core to our identity. It's something that we talk about often on this podcast, that the individual who is able to unite in the face of every single ligament in their body, telling them to divide, point out someone to blame, point out someone to be angry at, when we actually look at those adverse elements in the face and say, you know what, we're better off if we can come together. We're better off if we take the voices and perspectives and inputs and begin to understand one another. And we're better off if we actually try and create bridges of unity as opposed to mountains and walls of division. That's been something core to our American identity. And even though we have had tough times in our nation's memory and even our constitution's past, Brick by brick, step by step, we try and use these moments of adversity and division to try and collectively perfect a more stable, inclusive, and aspirational union. Right now, there is no doubt that stoked both by fear of economic opportunity, rhetoric of this president, as well as just ongoing sentiment about what it means to be American enough, there is far too much division in this country, and part of that division, in some respects, is only cratering further elements of distrust in various aspects of American society. Distrust of the media and who's saying the right thing or the wrong thing, distrust of government, maybe even distrust of your neighbor or your family member who has an opposing view. This concept of trust in institution is being shaped in real time, and even though it is impacting American identity— it's also impacting who Americans choose to listen to, and frankly, what that means for our overall outcome as a nation, of our union, and future elections. Today, American Enough is thrilled to have a special guest of the Republican side leaning of the House, You know, something that we try to commit to here by gathering a wide variety of inputs. Stephen Schmidt was an American campaign strategist and now a PR worker for the U.S. Republican Party, most notably he was Senator John McCain and vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin's lead advisor in the 2008 presidential run against Barack Obama. He's currently a political analyst for MSNBC, frequently appears on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, and was actually portrayed as a character in HBO's Game Change, a movie based on the book by John Heilman and Mark Halpern about the 2008 presidential campaign and how the party actually went about picking Sarah Palin. Steve Schmidt, while representing one side of the ledger by way of his bosses over time and supporting the Republican Party, speaks to us today about what it means to actually have a trust in institution and how the current rhetoric, frankly, from both the left and the right and the kitchen table at home, is reshaping that very core aspect of what America has always been. 
This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Thanks so much for joining to the podcast today, Steve. Um, you know, this morning, uh, a Republican leader, Steve Scalise, that was uh, poorly injured after a shooting at a congressional baseball game practice, re-entered the House chamber to much applause. And in moments like this, we really understand how American grit and resilience comes together when faced with adversity. Um, but over the past, you know, not just few months, but a couple of years, that sense of unity versus division has been more and more pronounced in our day daily rhetoric and our policy making. You've been a veteran of campaigns, you've you've helped governors, you've helped uh, advise companies and media. All of these different players impact the concept of trust in institution, whether we're trusting journalists, whether we're trusting government. I guess I wanted to ask you, do you think the current landscape and the way that we're talking about other Americans or the way that we're talking about government or the way that we're talking about unity versus division is shaping the way fellow Americans are trusting all of these institutions around us? Well, it's a it's a very complicated question, and I'm going to give you an answer that's probably longer than anybody would 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 ever want to read but um the what what I think is true in the moment uh, of time we're in right now and you just look at the russian interference in the election um and the use of social media and platforms like facebook to turn Americans against each other, um, to stoke angers, to stoke division. Um, Vladimir Putin looked at American society, looked at Western society, and, and he saw something. He saw a, he saw a, a vulnerability, uh, a weakness, um, and, and he's exploited that weakness. Uh, because his his assessment was right is that it was that it would be quite easy to get the American people at at each other's throats um, to not recognize the great inheritance that we we have as, as Americans how fortunate how lucky how blessed we are you know to to live in this country despite all its faults and all of its imperfections um, and and he was exactly right uh, that 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 he was that he was able to do it to accomplish it so easily and so so fundamentally undermine you know for so many people uh, trust in in systems like democracy. There's a Harvard University professor did a survey and you know he asked people who were born in the 1930s how essential is it to live in a democracy? The answer is over 80 percent. He asked people born in the 1980s numbers like 25 percent. The number in the 1990s was lower. Uh, it's scary stuff. Um, wow. But for sure, you know, the trust of, of uh, the collapse of trust in institutions um, has played an enormous role in, in where we are politically in the country today, where we are uh, culturally in the country today. You, you've seen profound corporate malfeasance, scandals, fraud. You've seen the fall of icons in sports. Uh, Bill Cosby turns out to be a serial rapist. Uh, you've seen corruption, incompetence, malfeasance, factionalism, a descent into tribal politics uh, between the parties in, in the United States 
uh, in the United States Congress, like ceasing, you know, to effectively at any level, you know, govern, you know, govern the country. Um, 9-11 was a hinge moment in history for certain, but, you know, the defining event for this generation of Americans uh, was the, was the uh, global financial collapse in 2008. And, you know, over the next 12 months after that, you have 13 million families lose their homes. You have 12 million people lose their jobs. You have 13 million families, you know, belongings for some of them out on the front lawn, you know, put there by a sheriff's department, bringing the foreclosure notice. And then comes the divorce, you know, maybe then alcoholism and addiction, you know, and not for nothing, you know, one one of the chief indicators, by the way, of, you know, a switch from an Obama county to a Trump county in this country is the rate of and the intensity of the opioid epidemic in the parts of the country that have been left behind. And so what, so what you're seeing is the formation of a new line in this country that defines us, right, the choice that, 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 that's at stake in elections. You know, for our careers in politics, that was a vertical line. It was right-left. It ran down the middle of the field. And we debate politics typically between the 45-yard lines. But now, is a horizontal line. And, you know, below that line are the people who have benefited, uh, sorry, above that line are the people who have benefited from globalization, benefited from the technological revolution, and below are the people who have been left behind. And, and, and that that's a really good point. I mean, it's, sorry to interrupt, specifically this concept of tribalism. Um, you know, there seems to be, a, you know, multitude of camps here, but there seems to be a distinction between sort of a civic nationalism, what you want your country to stand for, and then an ethnic yeah. nationalism that's feeding into that tribalism that you talked about. You know, when we talk about American identity and who is American enough, you know, who's um, fit enough to serve in the military if you're transgendered, or who is uh, fit to assimilate enough into this country if you're following certain immigration standards. Um, how you, you struck very, very early leadership separate from the GOP um, when you were uh, you took a stance back to the log cabin Republicans and specifically said freedom means freedom for everybody. I guess I'm curious right now, is this tribalism really being centered around the way we think civically we should be as a nation? Or is this devolving more into the ethnic or tribal factions, the way that we should be as a nation? And sort of what are the, the um, impacts of, of either approach? Well, I, look, so when we, we, look at, when we look at politics, right? We look at the political parties. We look at, we look at the voting patterns, right? We look at the intensity of primary voters, Right. I'm a, I, that's what I mean by tribalism. What I'm going to define as tribalism is that it's your tribe right or wrong. You look at you look at Roy Moore in Alabama and it's, it's inconceivable to understand why right. Mitch McConnell and, and Paul Ryan don't understand this. I mean, they, they they obviously have a have a point of view, you know, that if you have an R next to your name, it's like Batman suit. Right. It's like a magical, powerful suit that armors yes. you. And so. No, no matter what outrage you you commit, no matter what offensive thing you say, no matter how completely batshit crazy your your views are, um, you know, and Roy Moore falls deeply into that category. That if you have an R next to your name, we're for it. And I, th- I think it's, I think it's appalling to the American people. That's the definition of tribalism. We conservatism is a philosophy, and I think this is a problem more acute on the on the right. Obviously, um, conservatism is a descriptive meaning, a principle, 
of, of governing philosophy, and he's become a cult of personality. And the death of who's a true conservator or not is who has fidelity to, you know, the leader or to the craziest comment made on any given day by a talk radio host. And so the, yeah. when, you look at, when you look at kind of the tribalism in, the, in, in, in its practical effects in Washington politics, both Ryan and McConnell are hastening their own demise by trying to appease it as opposed to fighting it, as opposed to saying to Roy Moore, no, we're not going to support him. We took a vote in the conference. He's got no business being in the U.S. He's got and, no business and, and being in the lines. United States, you know, you know, Senate, in our, in our point of view. Yeah. And if the people of Alabama send him there, uh, that's their right, and he'll be seen, but, but not with our help. And so, right, I, I mean, but, but, but here's like the thing that people don't talk about is the country's not nearly as divided as it was in 1967, 1968, 69, 70, 71. I mean, Ken Burns has given the nation a great gift with this documentary, you know, the 18 hours with the Vietnam warriors. And, mm. you know, if, if you watch it, you, you'll certainly right. come away with the conviction that, you know, like the Civil War before that, which was the most divisive period, that being the second most. But, but if we got through those two things as a country, it, we're, we're going to get through this um, because the American people aren't as nearly divided on these issues as our politicians are and the culture is and that the media amplifies it. And they amplify it because they can monetize it, you know, by, by you know, niche broadcasting to narrow bands of 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 um of voters who are not representative you know of majority opinion in this country i mean when when you when you look at the approval levels of congress right now the republicans in congress they have a 15% approval rating 85% of the people object to them yeah, and, and specifically, I mean, it's an appalling gulf in the way that uh, not only the campaigning is occurring in terms of the rhetoric being used, but also how the governing is occurring. And it seems more and more, you know, whether you're talking about Democrats or Republicans, conservatism or more progressive ideologies, that the governing is really only happening, certainly with this administration, to the base, to the 63 million or so voters that, that put President Trump into office. Is that an appropriate way to govern, or is that only going to continue to impact the people's trust no, in how I mean, governance looks? I mean, look, politics used to be a game about persuasion, right? You know, the two parties would, would, would both objectively agree largely, you know, that, you know, here are the issues in the day. Here's the problems. we we got a deficit problem. You know, we have issues uh, national security-wise with the Soviet Union. You know, the Social Security is going bankrupt. Here are plans for our solutions. You go out and you debate. You try to, you know, build majority support for your position, right? doesn't work like that anymore, right? There, there's no human constituency around these issues, right? Politics is now a game of incitement, right? You're trying to incite. You know, it's much more acutely true on the right. I mean, there's not an equivalence between the between the two, but but the Democratic Party is not out of danger on this. Let me talk about that. I hope in a minute, but but it's incitement, right? And so that's why, if you please the special interest constituencies to fund the campaigns, right? That's why that's it, it's much more important to do that, right? And pass or try to pass a health care bill that you know has 13, 14, 15 percent support. Right. Antithetical to every precept of conservatism, as I've always understood it, you know, something that affects 100 percent of the people, 60 economy, have no idea how much it costs. 
have no idea how many people it's going to affect, have no idea what's going to do to the insurance right. markets, right? That's, there's no human constituency advocating for that. In fact, right, what, what it demonstrates is that, you know, the overwhelming majority just has no voice in the process because the process has been so fundamentally corrupted, right, by the, by the confluence of money, mm-hmm. um, money that's not disclosed, a, a gerrymandered uh, redistricting process that has insulated most most candidates from uh, most most uh, members of Congress from competitive races from serious candidates and a media culture that rewards the crazy that puts the most divisive voices in front of the most amount of cameras you know, a talk radio entertainment industry that's hijacked the, the, the intellectual side of the conservative movement and a, and a president of the United States who's made a, who's made a calculation that his political power um, comes from inciting uh, the worst and most base instincts um, and tearing at, you know, the most painful parts of the American social fabric, you know, on, on issues of race, for example. Um, and nobody's ever seen anything like right. it. From a from a president of the United States, and um, and and you know it's going to force a big debate in this country about what is American and what is an American. Absolutely, and and you pointed out, and I, I kind of want to shift to this that you know it's not that it's one party or one person alone that's stoking some of this difficulty in our country. Certainly, both the Republicans and Democrats, as well as just the the conversations we're all having around our own dinner tables, are contributors. You know, most recently on the health care proposals that you alluded to, you saw strong Republican stances from um, you know your former boss, Senator John McCain, as well as Senator Collins, Murkowski, and others. Um, but then when you kind of look to the right or sorry, to the left and you look at the Democratic Party, you've seen senators like Bernie Sanders and many of his colleagues support a health care for all bill, uh, certainly good in intent, um, but could only kind of widen the gulf between what is probably attainable between the Democrats and the Republicans. So I guess I was curious if you could comment based off of how the Democratic Party has ostensibly moved a little bit more to the left and some of their ideas, whether it has to do with automation and supporting so, new technologies in yeah. the workforce or health care, how are they overlooking entire gulfs yeah. of the country as so, well? On, you know, so it's shocking, for example, on the, on the, on the left. I, I don't want to associate this with the Democratic Party, but like on the left, you know, the, you know, with regard to Antifa, right, the justifications for violence. Uh, even against the most repugnant and odious humans on the planet, you know, neo-Nazis and, and Klansmen. Uh, it would have been shocking to Robert Kennedy, to Martin Luther King. You know, the fundamental illiberalism, illiberalism of it. And we would have understood that vigilanteism can't be tolerated in a nation of the, that, 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 that has fidelity to the rule of law. Um, you, you, look at, you look at the single-payer debate. Here's the reality about the health care debate that you wish somebody would stand up and say, essentially, which is what the position of the leadership of both parties should be, frankly. In 1986, when Ronald Reagan signed the legislation that said nobody can be turned away from a hospital, right, because they're indigent, right? Once everyone had access to health care, right, through, through what turned out to be the most expensive door in the history of health care, the emergency room, um, 
you have to figure out how to pay for it, right, in a way that doesn't bankrupt the country. And so what does everyone in the country have in common? Well, we're all going to need to see a doctor. It ought to be the best health care in the world. And it ought to be priced in a market that doesn't bankrupt the country. How do we do that? It's a complicated issue. Now, Absolutely. the problem with all the single-payer talk, you know, is in, like, California, for example, which has a state budget of $145 billion a year, proposal endorsed by many of the left-wing Democratic candidates in that state, had an annual cost of $450 billion a year, which is, you know, what is that, 2x the, the, the current state budget. So the point is, with, with Bernie Sanders, yeah. it's not the intensity, it's the dishonesty of the proposal. It's as dishonest and unrealistic as anything that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth when he talks about the wall that Mexico will pay for, right, or the terrific infrastructure that will cost a trillion dollars, tax cuts for everybody. It's nonsense talk. I mean, it's, it's, it's as equally nonsensical as the as the Republican health care bills, the Republican tax care proposal, it's just nonsense. And it's dishonest. You know, for a country twenty trillion dollars in debt because it's not affordable. People talk about Canada. Canada's got a great health care system. It's not perfect, but Canada is a country of thirty five million people. California is a state of thirty eight million people. The United States is 330 million and, and people. And that brings us so back to this. It, it's not a practical solution. Right. You know, and it's, it's not attainable just at a cost level. Absolutely. And, and so that, that the core to that point, which is interesting, is that when it comes to um, conversation, whether that's cultural conversation or political conversation, the role of honesty um, and intellectual honesty about your ideas um, and who you're creating enemies with is really, really important. I, I guess I wanted to shift gears a little bit, and you, you alluded to this at the top, um, but what what is the role of the modern media landscape where modern media now looks you know pretty distinct and different from modern media even you know in, in presidential campaigns you were part of just a few years ago when it comes to fact-checking and ensuring that level of honesty um, among any candidate, whether they're an incumbent or not? Daniel Patrick Moynihan had a, had a quote, you know, that in America, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. And we just objectively don't live in that country anymore. Um, so when, I was, when I was a kid, if you want to make a cassette tape for your car, the way you did that is you would put tape record next to the radio and you wait for a song to come on that you liked and you hit record and you wait like 20 minutes and another song come on after a bunch of songs you didn't like. And with iTunes, you don't ever hear music anymore that you don't want to hear. And with satellite radio, you don't ever hear genres of music that you don't want to hear. Um, and it's exactly the same as news. You know, when you think about the collapse of trust, right. media is included in that. What people trust is people like them. Uh, people receive their news through social media, which obviously is highly susceptible to foreign adversary-funded misinformation campaigns, propaganda campaigns of an epic scale. The truth is subjective. There are channels of information customized to their tribal affiliations where 
astonishing things like the reality of the president of the United States calling the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, who says that the Newtown massacre wasn't real, that it was committed by the government, as was as was 9-11. And so this is disturbing at a profound level. Because at the foundation of all democracies, all Republican democracies, is the concept of truth. It's foundational. The country's charter documents are founded on self-evident truths. And the genius of the Constitution of the United States is that it was able to be amended over time to more accurately reflect the charter of the nation, which is creedal, the concept that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And these are self-evident truths. And then in a government of the people, by the people, for the people, democracy can't function without accountability. And you can't have accountability without truth. Absent truth, none of this works. And so what, what you have seen is not just a collapse of objective fact-checking, you know, by so many in the media, but decisions by formerly serious news organizations with a point of view to you know, become involved in conspiracy theorizing and, and essentially become propaganda tools by any conventional understanding of what propaganda is. I don't know how you don't call them that. And so on, on talk radio, um, across so many of the uh, social media platforms, uh, you see, you see a real pernicious podcast constellation of misinformation, deliberate lies, you know, that are stoked every day by, you know, frankly, the most dishonest administration, you know, the country's ever seen in its, you know, 240 plus years. And, you know, the, this concept is, um, and, you know, just to round out the uh, towards the end here, this concept of, of anger um, that is easily stoked by these cultural wars or culturally oriented pieces of rhetoric um, on American identity is certainly one part of the pie, but a huge part of the pie, as you and I both know, um, and our former bosses spoke to often, is this concept of just economic opportunity and some of the inequity in in wages as well as just job loss in this country. You know, not that she would be the only person to be credited with this, but former vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin really put into motion this concept of economic populism. And shortly after Obama was elected, you really saw the boom of the Tea Party. I'm curious, though, that concept of economic opportunity and the anger around it is shared both by the left, the right, the red, the blue, really any American who wants an opportunity. Is there a reason why some of those quote-unquote populist messages seem to be a, a title that is bandied about a bit more by conservative party ideology as opposed to well, not no, just I, the whole country yeah, look, coming I, I together think, around I, I common think that, solutions? I think we've had populist cycles in the United States historically. You know, They, they typically last about eight yeah. years. Um, the, uh, when you look at, when you look at 
when, when you look at a Bernie Sanders voter who voted for Donald Trump in the general election, how can that be? And this is this erasure of the ideological line, which I think used to be fairly concrete and is now is now is is, is you know more like cheesecloth. But the far greater pull, hmm. right, in, in politics is cre- increasingly on that access. Um, you, you have a third of the country that is has the declining life expectancy, has rising infant mortality rates, uh, increasing maternal death rates, childbirth. These are uh, astronomical obesity rates, astronomical unemployment rates, uh, astronomical uh, addiction rates, um, hopelessness from a lack of economic opportunity. Uh, a collapse of the American dream, a, co- a collapse for big parts of the country of any concept of social mobility. You know, the, the reality is for a lot of people, the notion, well, you work hard, you play by the rules, you know, you can make it into the middle class and your kids can be doctors. It's not a reality for millions of people in this country anymore. You don't have any access to the first right. rung of that, that ladder. You, you can go to parts of Baltimore, and you stand in an affluent neighborhood and five miles away, one zip code away, right? Life expectancy in the all-black neighborhood dropping by 20, 24 years, five miles away. Might as well be, be, a, be a different planet. And so you, you look at urban systemic poverty. You look at increasing rural white poverty. You look at the the towns that have been left behind, um, the sclerotic state governments that can't provide services, that have bankrupted themselves. Um, you know, uh, a politics that is that is completely dissociated from their actual problems, that fight over nonsense in, in dishonest ways, both sides. You know, a clear subordination, you know, of the national interest in favor of the party's interest, kind of this arrival at this moment in time that George Washington prophesied about, frankly, in our political parties. Um, People are disgusted by it. They're angry about it. You know, and they're they're not wrong in saying that it's a rigged system. Um, Look at Donald Trump's response to the Jones Act in Puerto Rico. The shippers don't like it. Well, you have actual American persons, U.S. citizens, literally starving to death on an island. That's an American territory. It's extraordinary. And that's real. It truly is. It's very real. And and I guess one last question for you, given that there is very real um, reason to be angry and distrustful, uh, we do have... Um, starting very soon, a whole slate of candidates who will lean into 2018 to try and offer messages of hope or optimism or at least paths to turn around. Based off of your analysis and your reflection of prior campaigns, what does that message of hope or of an alternative to what we're seeing look like in the the midterm elections? Always has oppositional virtues uh, to the last president, and so 
Um, I, th- I think the candidate who will be successful against Donald Trump will be uh, someone who has the qualities of rectitude and probity, uh, who is a uniter, uh, who can explain the concepts of what it means to be an American, how fortunate we are to be Americans. Somebody that could talk about the great advantages we have as we get ready to enter the third decade of the 21st century. Um, The great challenges we face, our obligations to each other. The notion that we're all in it together. That country's resilient. Someone who has capacity to have love in their heart for the Trump voters for people who've been alienated from the American dream, someone who has an appreciation for the concept of the dignity of labor, its, it's essential importance, you know, to, to healthy character of people who need purpose in their life, um, is somebody who is able to look at people who disagree with them as opponents, not enemies, Somebody who's able to look at different ideas and not question their intentions, to try to come to understanding about why that person's coming from that perspective. Um, it's not going to be the person who can leapfrog further to the left on, on universal health care. It's not going to be a more polite but equally dishonest version of Donald Trump. You know, it won't be someone who, you know, has a talent, you know, equal to his on firing up, you know, the extremes on the other side, you know, that are, you know, thankfully at this moment in time, you know, much smaller, much less intense than what's broken out, you know, in the conservative movement. There's going to be someone who's um, a repairer of the breach you know, that, that Trump in this era has opened up. And, you know, I think somebody, you know, who potentially can frame a choice, you know, if we're, we're two miles down banana Republic lane in this country, um, let's, let's, let's turn around now and go back. Let's make this an aberration. Absolutely. And I think the point you made about empathizing and listening to one another and not just governing to the flyover states or just governing to the coasts are going to be pivotal to that. Um, Steve Schmidt, really, really, really appreciate your time, really appreciate your service to this country and, and, and public offices in general. Um, thanks for joining American Enough. Real pleasure. Thank you. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017. Theme music by Chris Thomas, edited by Mark Rako. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.